Last week we saw the church in the courtroom before the Sanhedrin. And tonight we're going to look at the church in the throne room before the court of heaven, before God, the final ultimate authority. In a time of crisis, a person will show his or her true colors. If you want to find what a person is made out of, just watch them go through a fiery trial. It's always a giveaway. Whenever we feel the squeeze of life, we will either react or we will respond. We will react out of what we see and we can blow it out of proportion. We can get all carried away and we can do something in a reactionary way or we can respond in a way that is right based upon a pattern that God has set within us. A predetermined pattern where we can make a choice and respond correctly. Everyone in a crisis relies on something or someone. In other words, when something bad happens, we automatically turn to something. We have some kind of a crutch, some kind of a hold that will hold us up in a time of testing, in a time of crisis. And of course, for a Christian, it should be the Lord. It should be prayer. And what's beautiful is, in one instance, we see them before the court of the Sanhedrin. In the next instance, we see them before the throne of God praying about it. I love the saying that says, every time we have an adversity, it becomes God's university. God has an opportunity to train us through the hard times, through the trials. It's a chance for us to lean upon Him. And you know, there are some times in life when that's all you can do is just flat lean upon the Lord. You've exhausted everything else and you've heard people th say things like, well, there's nothing left to do except pray. And there's nothing left except to trust in the Lord. I am convinced that God desires to bring us to a place where we say that. There's nothing left except to pray. Because we are so tempted to lean upon so many other things and God is the last resort. God knows that so many times. So He says, alright, since prayer is the last resort, I'm going to pull out everything you know that is safe. I'm going to pull the rug out from underneath your feet so that unless I hold you up, you're going to splat. So that we'll trust Him. Because it's not our nature to trust Him. We're not prone to do that. And I believe God would back us into a corner many times, don't you think? So there's nothing left except to trust the Lord. And then it's, of course, a university, a chance for God to teach us. Well, Peter and John, in a time of crisis, do two things. And it's talked about in the next couple verses. First of all, they went and found a group of close friends that they were associated with. And they told them all the things that happened. That was number one. Secondly, they got together with that group and entered the throne room of God and came boldly before the throne and asked God to help and asked God to give them boldness to go out and preach the gospel. In verse 23, it says, And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders said to them. I would like to consider what they did in verse 23 before we jump into their prayer that they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. 
seems that there is a law of natural affinity. You've heard the phrase, birds of a feather flock together. It's true. And you notice that it, it's a law that pervades all areas of life. Christians seek out other Christians. And it seems like there's always subcultures of people, people that think alike, people that act alike, people that have uh, the same taste, the same desires, often get together and form what we would call little cliques, little groups. They have them and they share the same kind of interests. That's not all bad. Birds of a feather do flock together. Thugs hang out with thugs. Professors hang out with professors. Christians hang out with Christians. And here the Christians who have been persecuted get together with the group of companions they're closely associated with. Now I have a question for you. Do you, as a Christian, have a group of companions that you can go to who know you, who love you, who you can make a connection with, and you can share all that has happened in your life? When you're going through a tough trial like these guys were after persecuted, they had a group of people they could touch and make a connection with them, and then together they could bring it to God. They reported all that the chief priests had said. They reported everything. Do you have that kind of a group? The reason I ask that question is that a lot of Christians live isolated lives. A lot of Christians have taken on the nature of Western society. Western society kind of breeds isolationism, independence. Get off to yourself and do your own thing. You know, we are not the share and share alike society that we used to be. In fact, it's just the opposite. It's very much of a privacy. Ever got in an elevator before and looked at people and tried to strike up a conversation with them? I was going up and down in an elevator in the Empire State Building. And they crammed a lot of people in that thing and there's a lot of floors. And you know what? It's almost like there's this unwritten code in elevators. No eye contact. No smiling. No conversation. Thou shalt not have fun or relate. I mean, people just kind of stay there and stand there. And if you go, hey, how you doing? They kind of look at you like you're from outer space or something. We want to be off to ourselves, even though you can have a city filled with people. I, I found that the biggest cities are the loneliest places. And the places where you can have great friendship are often the small little communities. Uh, masses of people are no guarantee to take away loneliness or isolation. In fact, it's just part of our society. Well, a lot of Christians are like that. I agree with the person who wrote this. Some people are like medieval castles. Their walls are high and they keep them safe from being hurt. They protect themselves emotionally by permitting no exchange of feelings with others. No one can enter. They are secure from attack. However, inspection of the occupant finds him or her lonely rattling around his castle alone. The castle dweller is a self-made prisoner. He or she needs to feel loved by someone, but the walls are so high that it is difficult to reach out or for anyone else to reach in. Now, the early church knew nothing of that kind of isolationism. In fact, it says in chapter 2, they devoted themselves constantly to the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. And in fact, this very chapter, let's skip ahead and look at verse 32. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. 
Neither did anyone say that of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anything among them who lacked any one. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each one as he had need. And Joseph, whose name was Barnabas, the apostle translated the son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and gave the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. I'm sure you've read passages before that speak of our relationship with each other, but I decided to do something tonight to read to you something that I did today. I took a smattering of New Testament passages, passages that I call the one another passages that speak about doing things with one another, just to drive this point home that every believer needs a group of companions to make connections with so that we avoid isolationism. Let me just read a a smattering of New Testament passages. Romans 12.10 Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor giving preference to one another. Be of the same mind toward one another Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. In Romans 18.8 or 8.18, Owe to no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. In Romans 15, it tells us, Therefore receive one another. In the same chapter in verse 14, Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you are also full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. And then the end of the book says, greet one another with a holy kiss. In 1 Corinthians it says, let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. 1 Corinthians 11, therefore my brethren, when you come together, wait for one another. In chapter 12, there should be no schism in the body. But the members should have the same care for one another. In Galatians, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. In Ephesians 4, Put away lying. Each one speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. In Ephesians 4.32, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another just as Christ forgave you. It says submitting to one another in the fear of God. In Colossians 3, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. In the same chapter, in another verse, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. In Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. In 1 Thessalonians, it says... Concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Same chapter, it says, therefore comfort one another. In another chapter, chapter 5, verse 11, therefore comfort one another, edify one another, just as you are doing. In Hebrews chapter 3, exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And then it says in James, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another 
that you may be healed, for the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. That's just a smattering of those one another verses. Now, the message is clear. You can't do those things by yourself. You can't love one another alone. You can't encourage one another by yourself. You can't reach out and exhort one another if no one other is around. It takes other people to do it. And the setting to do it is a group of companions, not just the massive gathering together at Bible study at church. Do you have a group that you can get together with? Now, there are several ways to do that. We call them kinships. Not that you have to belong to a kinship, by the way. There's a lot of you who gather together in groups that are not officially kinships. You have different times of getting together with other Christians. You don't have to belong to an official kinship to have fellowship. But you need, I believe, a smaller group, a subgroup, other than this large congregation for these passages of Scripture to live and become a reality. And to model what we see here in chapter 4 where they got together with their companion. You know, Calvary Chapel here is a large church. I'm sure you've noticed that. It is easy to get lost in the shovel, to become a, a face in the crowd with no real identity and often with no real responsibility. It's easy, therefore, to drift into trials and tribulation and hassles without anybody knowing about it. That's the dangerous part is you can go through stuff in your life that needs prayer, where you need to share with someone, but nobody knows about it because you haven't made contacts. There's a large church in Southern California that has home Bible studies, home fellowships. And an interesting thing happened. A couple from out of town moved into town in Southern California, got involved in the church, and immediately plugged into a home fellowship group. Within a couple weeks, they had their first trial. The husband got in an accident, had to be hospitalized. What did they do? They contacted the home fellowship leader. The home fellowship leader called the home fellowship members. Within hours, meals were prepared and they were taken care of for the next few weeks. Just like that. If that couple had not made contact with a small group, if they were just spectators, the thing to do would be Call the church and talk to the pastor, which at that church, good luck. It's so big, he travels a lot. There are other pastors, but they're not always easy to get to, too. They have a counseling love. Therefore, the church needs those smaller groups so that these one another things can be taken care of. I don't think they can be taken care of all by themselves. You know, we found something interesting that very, very much of our counseling at Calvary Chapel are those people who are not plugged in. In fact, if you were to take the counseling load, those people who come in and got to talk to somebody, not always, but very frequently, the majority, if you ask them, do you belong to a home fellowship on a regular basis, a small group of people where you make connections, they would say, no, I don't. Which tells me that the home fellowship people who attend are getting those needs met with one another. They're exhorting one another. They're loving one another. They're admonishing one another. And the needs are getting met. They're not just lost in the crowd, lost in space, so to speak. Every Christian needs, first of all, a solid foundation. Every person needs a solid foundation. 
And of course, that solid foundation is a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's where it begins. You know, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He spoke about our relationship with Him making a connection. Like a branch would be plugged into a main stem. That's how our relationship should be to Him. And of course, it's true that our fruitfulness, our effectiveness as a Christian is always directly proportional to the connecting times that we have with God. Christians that aren't fruitful, it's because they're not making connections with Jesus Christ. They're not hanging close to Him. But besides needing a solid foundation, every Christian needs a solid framework of family members. This me and God business won't cut it anymore. That is not the church. It's me and God. I don't belong to any group. I just go from this church to that church to that church. I belong to the body at large. And what often those people mean is, I'm too scared for other people to know me. I don't want to be vulnerable. I don't want to let people know who I am. I'll just float from place to place and say spiritual things but never be plugged in. Well, you're robbing yourself and you're robbing the church of a blessing. Because God has placed a gift within you and He wants you to share it. And you can't exhort one another, encourage one another, pray for one another, and love one another if you're not with one another. Let me read a scripture to you in Ephesians 2. It says, Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, now listen, the whole building, that's us all together corporately, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a habitation of God in the Spirit. That word joined together, by the way, means to be welded together or to be bound harmoniously together. That's the kind of relationships we are to have with one another. Welded or joined harmoniously as part of the same structure growing up to know the Lord second thing they did is after they went and shared all of these things in Acts chapter 4 is they prayed. Verse 24. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, You are God. You made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Notice that they raised their voices to God. They didn't raise their voice to the Sanhedrin. They didn't say, we're going to sign a petition because this law you passed that says we can't preach, that's wrong. They became spiritual activists. I'm not saying that social action is wrong. Oh, no. There comes a point where social action is good. But if you're a Christian, you must first be a spiritual activist. And these disciples didn't just talk about the theological implications of the law being passed that they can't preach the gospel, they turned theology into neology. They got on their knees and they first talked to God about it. Dr. R.A. Torrey once said, pray for great things, expect great things, work for great things, but above all, pray. Pray. I have attended many prayer meetings some of them have been very much of a blessing and a movement of God. There are others, prayer meetings, that are very boring. 
Not a lot gets done. You kind of want to fall asleep at them. Here was a prayer meeting that was different. I have never attended one like this because it says the place actually shook afterwards. Look toward the end of our section. Verse 31, when they prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the Word of God with boldness. James says the fervent, effective prayer of a righteous man avails much. I hope as we go through this section in the remaining 30 minutes of this evening, I hope that this will be an encouragement for all of us to have and desire effective communication with God. I think we all want that. I think we want to know how to effectively communicate with God so that it will avail much, so that we will see results, right? Don't you want to see that? All of us do. We want to get beyond, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. We want to get beyond the general, Lord, bless, lead, guide, and direct, which says the same thing four different ways. We want our prayers to be fresh, dynamic, fervent, and effectual. And we want them to avail much. Well, let's eavesdrop on their prayers. We go through the rest of it. Verse 25, Who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now look, Lord, on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed... The place where they were assembled together was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the Word of God with boldness. Every Christian longs for a prayer life with God that gets things done. The disciples even did. They came up to Jesus one time and they said, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples to pray. Now mark that question. They did not say, Lord, teach us how to pray. You know why? They knew how to pray. But Lord, teach us to pray. Lord, teach us to do it, not just to know about it. Remember, they were raised in Jewish homes. They knew all about the formal prayers that they should be praying, but they wanted Jesus to teach them how to pray. You know why? I believe this is why. Because the disciples were able to observe Jesus for a period of time. They watched Him. And I'm sure they just kind of scoped him out all the time. They were checking, they were watching the way he did things. They watched his miraculous power. They watched him heal people, open blind eyes, raise the dead. They listened to the words he taught. They were so powerful, so filled with wisdom. And then they watched Jesus pray and the request for Jesus to teach them to pray came after they observed him. After Jesus had finished praying one time, I believe it dawned on them. Hey, this Jesus, and at that point they fully didn't know who He was. Whoever He is, 
There's got to be a connection between all of this power and all of this wisdom and His dependence upon the Father. Jesus was utterly, totally dependent upon the Father. Yes, I know He was God in human flesh, but remember, Philippians says He emptied Himself. He divested Himself of the prerogatives of deity and He became a man totally dependent on God like you and I are. In fact, Jesus at one point said, the Son can do nothing of Himself, but the Father who lives within Him, He's the one who does the works. And when they said, Lord, teach us to pray, I believe they were saying, teach us to depend on the Father like You do. Teach us what it means to completely, utterly cast ourselves upon God so that we can be powerful, so that we can speak words of wisdom as well. And I believe that the Lord wants to teach us to pray. The best way to learn to pray is the Scripture. The best model for praying is the Bible. If you want to learn to pray, I suggest you do a study on biblical prayers. Look through the epistles at the prayers that Paul prayed. Look in the Old Testament at the prayers of Daniel, Joseph, Abraham. You know, the people in the Bible, some of them prayed long prayers. Often they prayed very short prayers. But you know what really strikes me? They got to the heart of the matter. They didn't pray for symptoms. They prayed for the cause, the root. They got right down to the heart of the matter. And if you want to learn to pray like that, I suggest that you study biblical prayers. Well, let's look at this prayer. You notice that these disciples, when they got together, had certain convictions about God. And it was those convictions that created the very prayer that they prayed in these verses. And first of all, I guess we could call it, they prayed with perspective. If you want to pray effectively, learn to pray with perspective. That is, you put your situation, your trial, your circumstance into the perspective of who God is and what God can do. Prayed with perspective. They first recognized God's authority and they recognized God's providence. Look with me at verse 24. When they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, You are God. And you say, well, so what? Why would they tell God He's God? I mean, God already knows that. Well, it wasn't for God. It was for them. They, in prayer, were reminding themselves of the authority of God. That word, You are God, is a rare word in the New Testament. The NIV translates it Sovereign Lord. The Greek word is despota. It's where we get our word despot, which has come to be a bad word. It literally means tyrant, dictator. But in its root, it means someone who has ultimate complete authority. Nothing escapes his sight or his grasp or his power. He is the despot. He is absolute, complete, sovereign authority. That's a good way to begin a prayer. Sovereign, dictator, boss of the universe. You're reminding yourself of who God is. You know, Jeremiah prayed that way. He said, Lord, You created the heavens and the earth. Therefore, there's nothing too hard for You. That's a good way to begin your prayer. Jesus said when you pray, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven. Get in your minds first who you're speaking to. 
Especially when you are overwhelmed with a big trial, like these guys were. They were about to get beat up. They were persecuted. They were threatened. Despota, sovereign boss of the universe. And they got their problem into the perspective of the authority and the sovereignty of God. Always a good way to begin prayer. You know, oftentimes we stand before the throne of God trembling. I mean, we've got this problem and we almost pray as if God is a weakling. I've heard some people pray and it's, it, pray it's like, God, I don't know if you can handle this or not. I mean, you're only God after all. And this is a real big problem. Instead of saying, look, this is a big problem to me, but you are God. You made the heavens and the earth. You spoke them into existence. There's nothing too hard for you. Therefore, this has got to be peanuts to you, Lord. And when you pray with perspective of the power and sovereignty of God, your trial begins to look that way to you. Yes, it's, it's big to you, but not to God. One of the best sayings I ever heard was this. Difficulty must always be measured by the capacity of the agent that's doing the work. If you are doing the work and you're relying upon you, it could be pretty big. And it's very difficult because difficulty is measured by the capacity of you. But when you get on your knees and you call upon the sovereign Lord, the dictator, the boss of the universe, who created the heavens and the earth and nothing's too hard for him, the capacity of the agent doing the work, he's limitless. And he will only be limited by your unbelief. And so they first of all saw the sovereignty of God. I once spoke to a girl. And I said, well, let's pray about this. And she said, hey, listen, you can pray all day and it won't do any good. It showed me at that point that she doesn't have a very effective prayer life. Do you think she would? You can pray all day, it won't do any good. People who don't believe that God is God don't pray much. People who don't believe that God is authoritative and big and can handle their assholes, they don't get on their knees much. People with poor prayer lives are people who don't see the sovereignty and the majesty of God. Because when you do, you'll call upon Him. And the fervent, effectual prayer of a righteous man avails much. You know, perspective is everything. I've given you this example before. Let me give it again. Right now I'm standing on a platform. And in front of me, it's a sea of chairs and faces. All of you collectively, oh, let's see, collectively it's about 125 feet by 120 feet deep, this area that I'm looking at. Pretty big area. This little object, my Bible, what do you say, seven by five and a half, something like that? This little object has the capacity to completely blind me of a larger object, all of you. All I have to do is put it in front of my face and because of the perspective being so close, you, although you're much bigger and this area is much bigger, I can't see you. If I were to take this, run out to the middle aisle, stick it out there and have you hold it and put it in perspective of size, it would seem so small in comparison to this large group. We do that with our circumstances, our trials, when we're in a squeeze, we often get the trial and it's, Oh God, it's all darkness. I can't see anything. Where are you, God? Well, take that trial and put it next to God is sovereign, God is majestic, God is big, and your trial seems a lot smaller. 
because difficulty is always measured by the capacity of the agent doing the work. So next time you pray, don't do this. Do this. And start your prayers, not by, Oh God, this big... Lord, wait a minute. Before, you, before I get to this big trial, You are the Lord. You made the heavens and the earth. Which is pretty good. I can't do that. And if you can create the heavens and the earth, well, I only need $15,000. Well, that's a lot to you, but not to God. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. Lord, please sell a few cattle. I need $15,000. It's not too hard for you. Then they prayed recognizing the providence of God. First of all, the authority of God. Now, these are their convictions. If you have these convictions in your prayer life, you'll be a powerful prayer warrior. The first conviction is God has authority. The second of all is providence. Look at verse 25. Let's finish it. Well, we read that, but especially down in verse 27. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles, the people of Israel were gathered together. Here's the clencher. To do whatever... Your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Did you get that? They start by quoting a psalm, Psalm 2, known by the Jewish expositors in times past and today as a messianic psalm referring to the Messiah's reign. And so they quote that and they say, you know what? This did not take you by surprise. In fact, Pontius Pilate, the Jews, Herod, all these people who gathered together to do their will actually were fulfilling your plan. Because God, you have foreknowledge. You know of these things in advance and you are able to weave men's decisions to accomplish your perfect will. That's called providence. It's called providence. God takes the normal activities of your life and weaves them together so that the outcome is His will. They understood that God had foreknowledge. And if you understand that God has foreknowledge, that is, He sees in advance and He knows in advance, that means that God can providentially work. Providence is an important term. It's not found really in the Scripture, but it describes God. Providence is, it comes from a Latin word. Two words, actually. Pro, video. Pro means before, video, to see. To see in advance. That's what providence means. It's as if God has a videotape, a little VHS of your life. And He has it plugged in and He can see way in advance what's going to happen and He can splice and edit and add into your life events so that at the end of the tape, it's His will. It's providence. It doesn't mean the miraculous. There are miracles where God intervenes against natural law in people's lives. But then there's the providence of God, where you meet a person, and by that meeting, something happens, an opportunity happens for you, and you move to that place, and you meet another person. Have you ever looked back in your life? You thought, wow, that was so amazing that I talked to that person at that time, and that happened. And As you look back, you see how God moved. That's providence. You don't always see it in advance. God does. God has got the VHS tape of your life. You don't. He's got the TV set on. You don't. And when you recognize, hey, wait a minute. 
God's not panicking right now. Yeah, we were persecuted. Yeah, this is a pretty hairy situation, but God isn't sitting up there biting His nails. In fact, He arranged all of this, just like He predicted, to do whatever His will determined. Isn't that wonderful to enter into prayer that way? My life is mapped out by God. Do you know that? Your life is mapped out by God? It says we are His workmanship, Ephesians 2.10. We are His work of art, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Now listen, which God has prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. God has a canvas of your life and He knows exactly what He wants it to be. You just cooperate and submit to Him and trust Him. You'll get there. So they understood the authority and the providence of God. Next, I want you to know that their prayer was well balanced. If you read through the prayer, you notice that they mix adoration with petition. Petition is where you pray for something for yourself. Adoration is where you praise God. They didn't begin their prayer saying, Lord, I want, I need. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. They came, first of all, extolling God. You are the sovereign Lord. And notice the language in verse 24. Who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said. And then at the end, they have a petition. They pray for something specifically. They pray for boldness. You know, to so many of us, prayer is like a big aspirin. We take it when we hurt. Oh, when we hurt, take the aspirin. Pray to God. And, you know, God will always be there, won't He? But a well-balanced prayer life is more than just listing your needs and wants before God. It should be well-balanced. It should include praise, thanksgiving, adoration. I found a little devotional book that's really helped me in my prayer life. It's called Drawing Near. And it's someone who has listed all of the prayers from Genesis to Revelation in order of thanksgiving, adoration, praise, supplication and petition, prayers for forgiveness, prayers for renewal. And each day, it takes you through a model of those prayers so you get to learn the prayers scripturally and divide your prayer life into a well-balanced prayer life. It's helped me immensely and given me food for thought so that I don't narrow my focus when I have communication with God. And it was a well-balanced kind of a prayer life. And then there's petition. They asked the Lord for things. And I don't want to minimize that. I don't want to think that you're bad and wrong if you ask God things for yourself. You're not. In fact, Jesus told you to do it. Ask, He said, which was a command, by the way. Ask, and you shall receive. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. God invites you to come and bring your needs before Him. And that's also part of the model prayer that Jesus gave us. When you pray, say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Praise, adoration. Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then give us this day our daily bread. And so He invited us to pray personally for things. Then I want you to notice in verse 24 again that this was united prayer. Peter and John didn't go back and say, you know, we were really hassled today. I'm going to pour out all my woes before you. Good night. God bless you. And left. 
and then went home, and before they went to bed that night, prayed alone. I'm sure they did pray alone, but they prayed in one accord. They got together and they prayed. Do you know why they did that? Because they've already experienced what it can do. The joy that filled their hearts as the 120 got together in the upper room a couple chapters before. And what they saw happen on the day of Pentecost inspired them to do it again, to get together and pray together in one accord. Jesus said, if two of you agree on anything. And of course, he said to pray according to his will, it will be done. If two of you agree, the word in Greek means symphony. You get together and you harmoniously agree. It was united prayer. And then as you notice, going on in verse 25, it is scriptural prayer. They quote Psalm 22. I think one of the most important facets of prayer is knowing the Bible. You know why? If you know the Bible, you won't pray for the wrong things. If you know the Bible, you know the general principles of God's will. And when you know the general principles of God's will, you are able to pray according to God's will. And you know what happens whenever you pray according to God's will? It gets done. That's why it's so important to know the Scripture. In fact, many times I will think of a Scripture that I read and I will say it as I'm praying. It reminds me of it. And I'm sharing with God a promise that He gave me. And in prayer, I'm laying claim to that promise in His Word. Now, if I'm to go before God and say, Now, God, I want a brand new blue speedboat to race around Cochiti Lake in five seconds. That's about all it'll take to get around that lake. But Now, I couldn't stand confidently believing that God is going to give it to me, knowing that it's God's will. However, if I stand before God and say, God... You said in your word, (laughs) not you'd give me a new blue speedboat, but God, you said in your word, if we being evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? Then, Lord, I'm asking you right now that you'd fill me with your Holy Spirit and enable me to do this work in your name. You know what's going to happen? I'm going to get it. Because Jesus promised me something, I'm laying claim to it, and because I know the Scripture... I'm praying according to the will of God. And it also boosts my faith when I do that. I hate to come before the Lord and be uncertain when I pray. I like to know what God's will is. And I confess that I don't. And I'm thankful that I have the Holy Spirit who intercedes with groanings that cannot be uttered. But it's wonderful to know the word. Therefore, Christian, I suggest to you, if you're not doing this already, that you read through the Bible once every year. Get on a plan. Many of your Bibles in the front or in the back have a plan of reading where you can read some of the Old Testament, some of the New Testament, and over a year period you cover the whole Bible. I know some people that read the Bible through like three times a year, but I would recommend that you do it once a year. And fill your life with the knowledge of God's Word it will absolutely increase the effectiveness of your prayer life. And then their prayer was definite. Verse 29. Notice what they pray for. Now, Lord, look on their threats. I like that. (laughs) Because I think I would be tempted to not pray that. I would want to say, Lord, take away their threats. Lord, don't let them threaten me anymore. 
They didn't say that. They just said, Lord, notice what they're saying. Look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. It's pretty definite. They asked for boldness to preach the gospel. Prayers to be effective must be free of being vague. Now, Lord, we just pray that you'd bless everybody in the world tonight. That kind of covers it all, doesn't it? Instead of praying for so-and-so who's a missionary in this particular province at this particular time, well, Lord, just bless the missionaries on earth. Bless all the unbelievers. May they all know you. May everybody on earth come to know Jesus Christ this year. Amen. Those prayers will do absolutely zip. Be definite, specific in your prayer life. What if you were going to go into a restaurant and a waitress came up to you and she said, may I help you? And you just close the menu and say, I have a great food need. Bless me. What do you think she'd say to you? She'd say, what do you want? Well, I just, just bless me with food. What do you want? You want salad? You want breakfast? You want dinner? You want something deep fried? You want something on the lighter side? You want a child's portion or you just want dessert? Be, you're specific with her, aren't you? I like my eggs over hard, just a little bit of salsa on the side. And I mean, you tell her in detail often what you want. Be specific with God. And notice the specific thing they requested. And this absolutely blows my mind. God, I pray that you would give us boldness to go back out in the streets of Jerusalem and to do all over again the thing that got us into trouble to begin with. Give us boldness to go preach the gospel. You guys can't preach the gospel. Lord, give us boldness to do it. What if our leaders were threatened by the government, the federal government of the United States of America, the Albuquerque Police Department, the FBI, the CIA, and all the government officials said, Christianity is outlawed, you can't preach it anymore. And your leaders were threatened and perhaps even beaten. Maybe we'd say, oh Lord, please, be merciful to us. Get us off the hook, would you? Save us from persecution, don't let us get beat up. Would we say, Lord, give me boldness to go back out there and do it anyway? Wow, how do you stop guys like that? You don't. They're unstoppable. Give us boldness that we can go out and we can preach the Word. Philip Brooks said, Do not pray for easy lives. Pray to be stronger men and women. Do not pray for tasks equal to your powers. Pray for powers equal to your tasks. And then the prayer was answered. Verse 31 and when they all prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. You can see why. With people praying like that, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the Word of God with boldness. Very interesting. They'd already been filled with the Holy Spirit once. Acts chapter 2, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They prayed for Boldness, and they also prayed specifically for signs and wonders to accompany them in the next verse. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, have you ever heard people say something like, you should only pray once. You should never pray the same thing a second time. 
Well, you know, notice that often in the Scripture we are told to be filled continually with the Spirit and to pray for it. And the wording indicates a continual prayer. Now, why do they need to be filled with the Spirit? They've already been filled with the Spirit. Well, if you were to buy a, let's say you were to buy a brand new car. Take it off the lot, it's shiny. It's a turbocharged car, full tank of gas. You drive it around for a long time, and all of a sudden you're driving down the freeway, and the thing runs out of gas. You pull off, you're stuck somewhere by Carrizoso or something. And you get out of your car, and you look at it, and you go, Can you believe that? I just bought a new car, and it doesn't work anymore. I mean, the thing ran out of gas, and it's only been two weeks. I've just had the thing two weeks. And you went to the dealership and you said, your car is defective. It ran out of gas. <laughs> well, fill the thing. The car is in great operating condition. You just got to have it filled over and over and over and over again. Christians need to be filled over and over and over and over again. Be continually being filled with the Spirit. You feel like your life is kind of defective? Maybe you need some gas. Maybe you need the power of the Holy Spirit to overshadow you and to work through you. Bottom line is that God loves you and God invites you, indeed commands you, to have a relationship of communication with Him. Where it's not just Him speaking to you through His Word, but it's you speaking to Him about specific things where in prayer you recognize when you pray He's big, He's powerful, He's the boss, and He providentially weaves your life together. He wants you to know His will through His Word so that when you pray, you can have an edge on your prayer life and pray according to His will. He wants you to be definite in your prayer. And the fervent, the fervent, effectual prayer or effective prayer of a righteous person will avail much. There was a boy in India watching a Christian, an older Christian pray by the side of a river. When the holy man completed his prayer, the boy went over and asked him, will you teach me how to pray? The holy man studied the boy's face carefully. He gripped the boy's head in his hands and plunged it forcefully into the water. The boy struggled frantically, trying to free himself in order to breathe. Finally, the holy man released his hold. When the boy was able to get his breath, he, gra he gasped. Why did you do that? Well, said this man, when you long to pray as much as you long to breathe when your head was underwater, only then will I be able to teach you to pray. You might be wondering why your head's underwater so long. Lord, what are you trying to do to me? I'm about to drown in this trial you've got me in. But it's his university, isn't it? When you're at your extremity, it's often the best time for God to work. <laughs> Perhaps that's why we're there so often. If we could just learn... to pray without ceasing.
To have a life of total dependence upon the Lord. To live according to His Word. To be obedient according to His will. To take everything to Him in prayer. Oh, what needless pain we bear all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. And Heavenly Father, we now turn to You. You who are the absolute total controller of all that goes on under heaven. The earth is yours and the fullness thereof. Nothing escapes your sight. You said that all things were naked and open before your eyes. You see all men. You are powerful. And Lord, besides that, we trust that you weave all things together for the counsel of your will. And we want to submit to your will. We don't want to flinch from it nor run from it, but cooperate with it. We praise you, Lord, because you said you'd never leave us or forsake us. You have not left the throne. It's not vacant. You're still sitting on it. And we praise you and adore you for that. We pray, Father, that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would give us boldness to proclaim your word and to be witnesses of your name, regardless of what it will cost. Give us courage, guts to obey you. And thank you, Father, for the times that you hold our head underwater. Because we're convinced that you know when to take it out. It's not to make us drown. It's to cause us to trust. Thank you for your love. Thank you for you for your commandments to call on you and to pray to you. I pray for everyone here, Lord, that they would develop a network of believers, of companions. When something arises, that they won't have to take it to themselves. That they will take it to you in prayer, but indeed they would take it to you in prayer with a group of people who know them and love them. That everyone in this auditorium would have a sufficient number of people, brothers and sisters, who can cooperate with their faith. And teach us, Lord, to pray. In Jesus' name, amen.